Morning, ASI. Wasn't that beautiful? Thank you, Fletcher Academy. Such a gift. Good to see you all again. It's a privilege to be with you all today. Uh, this morning, I've been asked to address the topic that I believe is of incredible importance to us as a people, especially if we want to experience revival in our personal lives and corporately as a movement. And we're going to be discussing the faith of Jesus. It's a story that many of us may view as familiar, but my prayer is that God allows us to experience this in a fresh and new way and in a way that will radically transform our lives. Bob mentioned yesterday that it's possible to be serving Jesus while being in a state of having lost our first love for Him, that we can be so busy serving Him that we forget to love Him, to be with Him, to bring Him with us. And, um, and it's possible to not be aware of that. And so I believe what can guard us from that is the topic that we're addressing today. And so I really believe God did something special, what Bob shared yesterday morning in preparing us for today. So today we're going to be addressing the simple story of the cross. I invite you to join me as we pray. I'm going to kneel, invite you to bow your heads. Sweet Jesus, I thank you for this privilege to look at you this morning, to see you in your highest moment, and we've been challenged in the counsel that we've been given as a church to be willing to be small men handling great subjects. Lord, I confess I'm a small man, but I know you have what's needed. So I pray that as I handle the greatest of subjects, that you would bless us, that you would show us your glory. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're told in the 1888 materials that the want, the need, what's most desired in the religious experience is the acceptance of Jesus Christ as presented in the gospel. This is what we need the most. So what is that gospel? Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, which implies some things. It first implies that he saw value in the thing that he's seeking. You don't go looking for something that you don't value. And it also implies that he's taking the initiative in bringing about the solution, even though we are in a horrible condition that Jesus is taking the initiative, and I'm so thankful for this, that God was not waiting for us to do something before He did something. He takes the divine initiative going forward, even though we're in a horrible condition. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus did not just write a check for the price of sin, he literally became sin and received the wrath of God towards sin to set us free. But what did that look like? And what does that teach us about the faith of Jesus? I'd like to tell you the story this morning that has radically changed my life. It's the story of the closing hours of Jesus's life. In John chapter 13 to 17, this is a quote from Desire of Ages, uh, and she's commenting on John 13 to 17 and this kind of last discourse that Jesus has with the disciples. If you have a red letter Bible, it's a bunch of red letters, all the things that need to be said and shared with him before his departure. She says, during that time, Jesus had earnestly been conversing with his disciples and instructing them. But as he neared Gethsemane, he became strangely silent. 
He had often visited this spot for meditation and prayer, but never with a heart so full of sorrow as upon this night of his last agony. Throughout his life on earth, he had walked in the light of God's presence. When in conflict with men who were inspired by the very spirit of Satan, Jesus could say, He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. I do always those things that please him. But now he seemed to be shut out from the light of God's sustaining presence. Now he was numbered with the transgressors. The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear, and upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dreadful does sin appear to him, so great is the weight of guilt which he must bear, that he is tempted to fear it will shut him out forever from his Father's love. Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, he exclaims, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. As they approached the garden, the disciples had marked the change that came over their master, and never had they seen him so utterly sad and silent. As he proceeded, this strange sadness deepened, yet they dared not question him as to the cause. They don't even have the courage to ask what's wrong, and his form swayed as if it were about to fall. As Jesus reaches the garden, the disciples look anxiously for his usual place of retirement and that their master might rest. But every step that Jesus now took was with labored effort. He groaned aloud. Jesus wails in this moment, as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. Twice his companions supported him, or else he would have fallen to the earth. Imagine, Jesus' legs collapse from under him, and they have to catch him, else he would have fallen to the ground on two different occasions. He felt that by sin, he was being separated from his Father. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep, that his spirit shuddered before it. This agony he must not exert his divine power to escape. As man, he must suffer the consequences of man's sin. And as man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. Christ was now standing in a different attitude from that in which he had ever stood before. As the substitute and surety for sinful man, Christ was suffering under divine justice. He saw what justice meant Hitherto, he had been an intercessor for others, but now he longed to have an intercessor for himself. Imagine Jesus, who ever lives to intercede for you and me, and in this moment, I just wish someone would pray for me. It's difficult. The psychological agony that Jesus is going through in this moment is so intense that physiologically, the man begins to bleed through his pores. The life forces are being crushed out of him. By the way, you know what the word Gethsemane means? It's the press. It's a place where they smash oil out of olives. And Jesus is literally having the life forces pressed out of him in this moment because of the weight of your sin and of mine. Now, you and I under these same circumstances, we can check out when things get too hot, right? We pick up the phone, we run away from conviction, we do something else, call somebody, change the channel, right? When something convicts us, Jesus doesn't have that opportunity. Jesus has to stare down the gun barrel of this circumstance, and there's nowhere for him to run. 
back to Desire of Ages, what was to be gained by this sacrifice? How hopeless appeared the guilt and ingratitude of men, and in its hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. The people who claim to be above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you, Jesus. They're seeking to destroy you. One of your own disciples, who's also listened to your instruction and has been among the foremost in church activities, will betray you. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. All will forsake you. Christ's whole being abhorred the thought that those whom He had undertaken to save, those whom He loved so much, should unite in the plots of Satan. This pierced His soul. The conflict was terrible. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was literally crushing out his life. Guys, this is before a single hand has been laid upon him. No one has yanked out his beard. He hasn't been punched in the face. He's not been tortured or scourged, and he's already to the point of death because of the weight of your sin and mine. Behold him contemplating the price to be paid for the human soul. And in his agony, Jesus clings to the cold ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn any farther from God. The human heart longs for sympathy in suffering. Is that true? Yeah. This longing Christ felt to the very depths of his being. In this moment, he's just longing for Peter, James, or John to crawl across that cold gravel, place a hand on his shoulder, and tell him, Jesus, we're here. They can't tell him it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. But what does Jesus get from them? Nothing. In the supreme agony of his soul, he came to his disciples with a yearning desire to hear some words of comfort from those whom he so often had blessed and comforted and shielded in sorrow and distress. The one who had always had words of sympathy for them was now suffering superhuman agony, and he longed to know that they were praying for him and for themselves. Were they? No. How dark seemed the malignity of sin. Terrible was the temptation to let the human race bear the consequences of their own guilt while he stood innocent before God. Jesus is strongly tempted in this moment to leave us, guys. It's so overwhelming. His humanity is shrinking from this responsibility, we're told, in another place. But if he could only know that his disciples understood and appreciated how difficult this is for him, he could be strengthened. Did they? No. So was he strengthened? No. Jesus prays three prayers of agony, pleading with the Father to be delivered from this call. If it's possible, Father, please. And then your face comes into the mind of Jesus. And this is what gives him the intrinsic motivation to even utter the words, nevertheless. Not my will, but yours be done. And this back and forth is agonizing for Jesus. And the cup that he's talking about is the same cup mentioned in Revelation chapter 14. It's the cup of God's unmingled wrath. 
And Jesus is drinking that thing to the dregs right now. Second volume of the Testimonies tells us, in this moment, Jesus was realizing his father's frown. He had taken the cup of suffering from the lips of guilty man and proposed to drink it himself and in its place give to man the cup of blessing. The wrath that would have fallen upon man was now falling upon Christ and it was here that that mysterious cup trembles in Jesus' hand. It was the sins of a lost world that were upon him and overwhelming him and again a sense of his father's frown. The unmingled wrath of God is being poured out upon God. It's a seeming contradiction in terms, but you're on the mind of Jesus, and this is what leads him for a third time to say, nevertheless, if this is what it takes to win them, I will do it. We're told this powerful, heartbreaking line in Desire of Ages, page 690, that in this moment, after that third submission, we're told that his decision is made and he will save man at any cost to himself. I don't know how, I don't care how much this hurts. I don't care how difficult this gets. This train will not stop. Whatever it takes to save them, whatever they deserve, lay that on me, he says. And boy, does he. But he's not the only one who's hurting in this moment. God suffered with his son, and there was silence in heaven. Heaven is not a place that's known for being silent. Read the book of Revelation. And could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic hosts, as in silent grief the angels watched the Father separating His beams of light, love, and glory from His beloved Son. They would better understand how offensive in His sight is sin. If we saw the strange act that they had to witness, we would not do what we do. And then God has to send an angel from the right hand of His throne to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to do for Him what we did not do, what Peter, James, and John did not do. It's this heartbreaking and touching scene in Desire of Ages where this angel comes down to earth, cradles the head of Jesus in His bosom, and speaks tender words of encouragement to Him, reminding Him of the promises of God. Jesus, you will see the travail of your soul and be satisfied. It's going to be worth it. That this is my son in whom I am well pleased, it's still true. And what's implied in these texts and what Jesus says earlier as he enters the garden is that he never would have even made it out of that garden were it not for this visitation from the angel. The biblical text says that the angel was sent to strengthen him. Ellen White alludes earlier that we read that he had the disciples shown him the appreciation of what he was going through, he could have been strengthened. They didn't. Jesus says, my soul's exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And it's this angelic visit, I believe, that even gives Jesus the ability to continue this journey. As he goes down to the, garden of, uh, to the gate, basically, for the garden, he's greeted by, greeted by this group of brute guards with implements they're not going to need for Jesus. He's a man of peace. And yet in this moment, he's greeted by Judas, who betrays him with a kiss. 
And in that moment, Jesus musters the unselfish love to refer to this man as friend. Friend. Some of us in this room this morning have people in our lives today that we cannot refer to as friend because they went too far. What they did was too much, and I just can't. In His strength, you can. Amen? We're not asking you to return to abusive scenarios or so forth. That's not the point. But what we are saying is the disposition of your heart towards these individuals can change by God's grace. Then Peter has a brilliant idea. He grabs a sword and gets busy and hacks Malchus's ear off. And the response of Jesus in this moment is a response that some of us may need to hear today. Put your sword in its place, Peter. I don't need your violence to defend me. Jesus doesn't need your violent arguments either. I can handle it. They aren't taking my life. I'm giving myself for them. The kingdom of heaven is not advanced by taking. It's the glory of God to give, we're told. Then Jesus is given a sham of a trial where the word justice isn't even invited to the conversation. Soon after this, Isaiah 52 alludes to the fact that he's literally beaten beyond the point of recognition. You cannot recognize who this man is when they're finished with him. And then he's brought before the Jews, and what do they have to say for the Messiah that's come to save them? We will not have this man as Lord over us. We have no king but Caesar, and give us Barabbas. And we think to ourselves, what savages, what monsters, how could they say such a thing? But before we're too hard on the Jews, we need to come face to face with the reality that every time you and I choose our choice sins over Jesus, we're saying the exact same thing. I will not have this man as Lord over me. I have no king but Caesar, and give me Barabbas. We're no better than them. I'm no better than them. All of us, were it not for the grace of God, deserve to die because of our sins. But we have the grace of God. Amen? And then comes the next, what I believe is one of the most powerful and convicting and heartbreaking scenarios in Jesus' vulnerability. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone desires to come after me and follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You're familiar with this text? It dawned on me a couple years ago, well, what did it look like when he took up his? In John 19 and verse 17, it says, And he, Jesus, bearing his own cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 32, it says, Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear his cross. I have a very important question for you this morning. Does Scripture contradict itself, yes or no? These are not statements of contradiction. They're statements of chronology. Jesus began this journey carrying this weight, but something happens. Let's see if we can make it through this. As Jesus passed the gate of Pilate's court, the cross which had been prepared for Barabbas was placed upon his bruised and bleeding shoulders. Two companions of Barabbas were to suffer death at the same time with Jesus, and upon them also crosses were placed. But the Savior's burden was too heavy for him in his weak and suffering condition. 
Since the Passover supper with his disciples, he had taken neither food nor drink. He had agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane in conflict with satanic agencies. He had endured the anguish of the betrayal and had seen his disciples forsake him and flee. He had been taken to Annas, then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate. Then from Pilate he was sent to Herod and then sent again to Pilate. From insult to renewed insult, from mockery to mockery, twice tortured by the scourge, all that night there had been scene after scene of a character to try the soul of man to the uttermost, but Christ had not failed. Amen? He had spoken no word but that tended to glorify God. All through the disgraceful farce of a trial, he had borne himself with firmness and dignity. But when after the second scourging the cross was laid upon him, Human nature could bear no more, and he fell fainting beneath the burden. The crowd that followed the Savior saw his weak and staggering steps, but they manifested no compassion. They taunted and reviled him because he could not carry the heavy cross. Again the burden was laid upon him, and again he fell fainting to the ground. His persecutors saw that it was impossible for him to carry his burden further. They're puzzled to find anyone who would bear this humiliating load. The Jews themselves could not do this because the defilement would prevent them from keeping the Passover. At least they have their priorities intact. None even of the mob that followed him would stoop to bear the cross. And this is where Simon steps in and we're told that actually leads to his conversion. But the question was, if Jesus is telling us to take up our cross and follow him, what's that going to look like? you're going to collapse. It's going to be too much, and you're not going to be able to bear it. And that's the point, guys. Jesus humiliates Himself by collapsing under the weight of the cross that He's been given to make it clear to you and to me that we're not losers when we're overwhelmed by the crosses that we're given. You're not a loser. Some of you are bearing burdens today that no one else knows about and it's crushing you, and it's killing you, and you're collapsing under the load. And Jesus wants you to know this morning that if you had to go through the agonizing and humiliating effort to carry the cross you've been given only to collapse under its weight, you have a Savior who understands. He's been there. We have to come face to face with the reality that we can't bear the cross that we've been given and that we need help from a source outside of us. And Jesus humiliates himself to give us this example. Vulnerability is not a sign of weakness. Then Jesus is nailed to this demonic torture device. He is raised into the air. They slam it into the ground and the hole in the rock that's prepared for it. And every nerve and sinew of his body has fire running through it. And yet we're told this strange line that the physical pain was, quote, unquote, hardly felt in comparison with the emotional and psychological agony that Jesus is enduring in this moment and the spiritual agony. Then words of unbelief are heaped at Jesus. If you're the Son of God, save yourself. The people who are crucified beside Jesus, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. And irony of ironies, it's precisely because Jesus is the Son of God that He's not coming down from that cross. And He's already saving them. They just haven't figured it out yet. Then this voice of sophistry returns, Jesus, these people don't appreciate you. 
You're wasting your time, man. Just move on. And Jesus ignores these temptations. And one of the hardest things for Jesus is that the only constant that he's had in his life for 33 and a half years is the presence and approval of his Father. And in this moment, it's gone. In the experiential mind of Jesus, it's as if the Father is not there. He can't sense Him. He can't feel Him. And words come out of the mouth of Jesus in this moment that you do not expect to hear from God Himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a direct quote from Psalm 22 and verse 1. And to the onlookers, it seems as though Jesus has lost faith. But if you're familiar with the rest of the chapter, there's a point of transition in verse 21 where it says, you have answered me. Verse 24 says that you have not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. And then in verse 27, it says, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This is going to lead to revival. That's the illusion here. So this is what Jesus said would happen in John chapter 12 and verse 32, that I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples unto me. But the darkness he's experiencing in these closing hours is eclipsing what he stated earlier, and Jesus had to choose to persevere through faith, even though he could not sense the Father's love. So Jesus didn't just remember Psalm 22 and verse 1 in case things got nasty, right, in case he ever got to a place where he doubted that God was with him. His whole life was filled with the reality of God's presence. But Jesus memorized the whole chapter, and this is so important for us, because when Jesus is claiming verse 1, he's also claiming the rest of the chapter. So when he's claiming verse 1 and it looks like defeat, he's claiming the whole chapter, which ends in victory. Amen? The faith of Jesus, persevering by faith, resting in the Father's love even when he can't feel it. You ever wonder why it is that it looks like midnight at noonday at the cross? We're told in Desire of Ages 7.53 that in that thick darkness, God's presence was hidden. God Almighty is on earth in this moment. This is alluded to in Psalm 18, I believe. And He makes darkness His pavilion, conceals His glory from human eyes. God and His holy angels are beside the cross. The Father was with His Son, yet His presence was not revealed, and had His glory flashed forth from the cloud, every human beholder would have been destroyed. It's the mercy of God and the justice of God present at Calvary. Many of us would think these people deserve to get nuked by this encounter. They're crucifying Jesus, they're spitting in His face, they're gambling for His clothes, and yet in this moment, even these people are being spared and shown mercy so that they can respond to the faith of Jesus that they are not appreciating right now. The mercy and love of God on full display in this moment. Jesus is receiving what those people deserve, and they're receiving mercy so that they can respond. Their life is being justified in that moment while Jesus' life is being crucified. In that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the, Father, with the Father's presence. He trod the winepress alone, and of the people, there was none with Him. You know why? Because there's times when you and I tread the winepress alone, and there's no one with us. Hebrews 4 tells us we have a high priest who's sympathetic to all of our weaknesses, all of our temptations, 
and he's sympathetic for this reason, so that when you're suffering and you're hurting in the same ways that he suffered and hurt, you'll come boldly into his presence, that you may receive grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. Tim Keller phrases it this way, that Jesus was truly abandoned so that we will only feel abandoned. Jesus had to endure a process that you and I will never have to endure because the comfort and presence of the Holy Spirit and Jesus are always available to us. This guy had to go through genuine radio silence, and he did it just for you and just for me. Jesus endured this so that you will not have to. But what is it that keeps Jesus going through all of this madness? Why is it that Jesus would keep going? What keeps him through all of this chaos, this madness, this awful, horrifying experience? You know what it was? It's you. Jesus cannot bear the thought of losing you. There's nothing more important to him. We're told in another place that heaven was not a place to be desired while we were lost. Jesus does not want to be in heaven without a chance for you to be there, and He would rather risk everything. And it was a huge risk, because if Jesus stumbled in word, thought, or deed at any point on this journey, He will never see the Father again. He will never live again, and the universe itself may very well implode. That's a tremendous risk, my friends. But Jesus felt that you were worth taking that risk. Heaven was not a place to be desired while you and I were lost. And in this moment, as Jesus is being overwhelmed by the weight of the sin of the world and separation from His Father, He now is to a point in His own mind experientially where He is incapable of seeing through the portals of the tomb. Even though not all that long ago He had declared He would be raised in three days, at this stage, that's not an option anymore. Sin is so heinous in His sight by what He's experiencing that He will never see the Father again, He will never see the light of day again, and even if this plan of salvation does work and you're saved, He's not going to be there to see it. This is what Jesus is feeling in this moment, and this is why John chapter 13 and verse 1 is incredibly profound knowing that. It says that having loved, and it's the word agape here, perfect, other-centered, unselfish love, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus literally loved you to the end of his existence. If he will never see what happens as a result of this, if he's never raised, he loved you literally to the end of his experience. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. And in those dreadful hours, Jesus had relied upon the evidence of His Father's acceptance heretofore given Him. Remember, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12 says that here's the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, not their faith in Jesus, the faith of Jesus. There is coming a time, my friends, and some of us are going through many trials right now where it's difficult to persevere through faith in these trials. It's hard. Grief, loss, separation, abandonment, loneliness, betrayal. It's hard for us to cling to Jesus and to believe in the Father's love when all of life is coming against you. It's going to get worse, guys. And in that moment, our faith is not good enough. Our faith is not going to make it through these crises that we go with. Even the smaller ones in life, let alone the other things, we desperately need a faith that's greater than ours. And the good news is it's available to you this morning. The faith of Jesus. 
He can give you His faith. He can be the author and finisher of your faith and rewrite your faith story to have His success written in your place. He was acquainted with the character of His Father. He understood His justice, His mercy, and His great love. Even though it feels that God is nowhere to be found when I need you the most, I know you well enough to give you the benefit of the doubt and what I don't understand is happening right now when you're enduring the deafening silence of God. By faith, Jesus rested in Him whom it had ever been His joy to obey, and as in submission, He committed Himself to God, and the sense of His Father's favor was withdrawn, and by faith, Christ was victor. Amen? And then Jesus ascends into heaven. Some days later, Jesus ascends into heaven, and the angels erupt in praise. You have never seen a worship service like this in your life. And, as, and imagine, Jesus' love tank is pretty empty at this stage, yeah? Right? No one understands or appreciates Him on earth. You think He's ready for something. But in this moment, Jesus says, no! He refuses their worship, and He presses into the presence of the Father, and He has one question. Can those whom you have given me be with me where I am? Guys, nothing's more important to Jesus than you. You're all he thinks about. He refuses worship that he deserves just to be able to hear from the Father himself. And the answer the Father gives is yes. Yes. And he embraces his son for the first time in 33 and a half years. Yes, they can come. This is why Revelation 12 says that the heaven should rejoice, but woe to the earth. Then I heard a voice a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. This is a response to the Christ event. For the accuser of the brethren who accused Him before our God day and night has been cast down and say hallelujah this morning. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And this victory Jesus achieved even makes the angels and unfallen worlds more secure, we're told. In the Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889, there's an article called, What Was Secured by the Death of Christ? So if you're wondering this morning if God can accept you, Calvary says, yes! Yes and amen. You are accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1 tells us. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. John 12.32 says, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all peoples unto myself. But that word peoples is supplied. It's bigger than that in a cosmic sense. When Jesus is lifted up, He literally draws awe to Himself. It's like a magnet of grace. Jesus, another moment of the faith of Jesus, it's evident here in his closing hours, is the fact that Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. But think about what's happening here. Jesus is praying to the Father who doesn't seem to be answering his previous prayers. And yet he still prays and by faith believes that when he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he knows the Father's love well enough to rest in the fact that he will do what he said. If that's not the faith of Jesus, guys, what is? Choosing to rest in the Father's love heretofore revealed. And uh, Desire of Ages says this about that prayer. That prayer of Christ for His enemies embraced who? The entire world. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live from the beginning of the world to the end of time. Upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God and to all forgiveness is freely offered. 
Whosoever will may have peace with God and inherit eternal life. And God's people at the end of time will also have this other-centered, unselfish love. Jesus, his faith is worried about the thief on the cross. His faith is worried about his mother. His faith is worried about those who are lost. And the people at the end of time who truly receive the faith of Jesus will also have an outward faith that's worried and concerned about others and places others' needs above their own. And this is where uh, what was read by Patty earlier, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11 comes in, that Jesus shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You're justified by his faith, and he's satisfied. Amen? And Jesus went through all this because he sees in you a pearl of great price. This is why Paul says in Romans 1, 16 to 17, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith, Jesus is overcoming and pursuing faith to faith, our reciprocating faith in Him, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He's quoting from Habakkuk, and in the original language, Habakkuk says, the just shall live by His faith, by the faith of Jesus. So Romans 14, verse 12, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The only way people can be viewed as having kept the commandments in the past or even being capable of keeping them in the present or the future is because of having first encountered the faith of Jesus. Only Jesus' sufferings, death, and righteous life can make one righteous. Listen to this. Many who profess to be Christians become excited over worldly enterprises, and their interest is awakened for new and exciting amusements, while they are cold-hearted and appear as if frozen in the cause of God. Here is a, here is a theme, poor formalists, which is of sufficient importance to excite you. Eternal interests are here involved. Upon this theme, the cross of Christ, it is sin to be calm and unimpassioned. The scenes of Calvary call for the deepest emotions, and upon this subject, you will be excusable if you manifest enthusiasm. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. He is worthy. Ellen White wrote this letter to a discouraged Christian. She said, the message from God to me for you is this, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you have nothing else to plead before God but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never never be turned away. It may seem that you're hanging upon a single promise, but appropriate that one promise and it will open to you the whole treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. Cling to that promise and you are safe. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you present this assurance to Jesus, she says, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God that if you have nothing to offer Jesus this morning, my life has been a mess, I can't get anything right, my promises are like ropes of sand. If you will press into His presence and say, you promised that if I come unto you, you're not going to cast me out. In that very moment, my friends, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. So why wouldn't you come? Why would you refuse to come? The faith of Jesus. We're told it's talked of, but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message then? Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might be our sin pardoning Savior. He was treated as we deserve to be treated, and he came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply, fully, and entirely is us receiving the faith of Jesus.
E.J. Wagner, one of the great gospel preachers of the late 1800s, phrases it this way to show another element of the faith of Jesus. He says that God chooses men not for what they are, but for what He can make of them. And there's no limit to what He can make of even the meanest and most depraved if they're only willing and believe His Word. This also is a faith of Jesus, seeing something in you that you don't even see and treating you as if that were true. Why? To awaken within you a desire to live a life that would honor His faith in you. So the faith of Jesus that's received by God's people at the end of time is a faith that pierces through any darkness or doubt, rests in the Father's love, and one that sees the value in the people that have been purchased. We will see people for what God can make of them, not what they currently are. I want to close with an idea of what happens when we reject this message. Back to E.J. Wagner in Everlasting Covenant. He says, and so it was on throughout the plagues that all the steps in each case were not recorded, but we see that it was the long suffering and mercy of God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. The same preaching that comforted the hearts of many in the days of Jesus made others bitter against him. The raising of Lazarus from the dead fixed the determination of the hearts of the unbelieving Jews to kill him. And then listen to how he lands the plane. He says, the judgment will reveal the fact that everyone who has an hardness of heart rejected the Lord has done so in the face of the revelation of His mercy. If anyone is going to be lost in the end, they're going to have to step over the crucified body of Jesus to get there. Every single one of them is going to encounter a revelation of His grace. You want revival, ASI? We're not going to find it until each one of us individually stares at the crucified body of Jesus and we realize that it's our fault. We did this. My sins killed Jesus. Mine. It should have been me up there. It should have been me. And yet Jesus saw something in you and in me that led him to do this for us. He chose to step in my place to take what I deserve and to make a way of salvation for me, and He's offering that to you as well this morning. Maybe you've lost your first love. Maybe you've lost sight of what this whole thing is really about. Jesus is inviting you today to come back to your first love, to open the door of your heart like the invitation He gave to the church at Laodicea, to let Him in and to dine with Him. Maybe you've never given yourself to Him. There's no better time to do that than today. So as Sarah and Neville share this song, I want to invite you to give Him your heart, to let Him do a transforming work in your life, to earnestly pray as you're hearing this song, to have an open heart and, a hope in my, and an open mind. God, I want all of you, and I want you to have all of me. I've lost my first love. I'm just in the, in the, the, the habits of life, doing the thing I've always been doing, but I dropped you somewhere along the way, and I need that again. I miss that closeness that we used to have. I miss that experience we used to have together. And if you've never had that experience, there is no better day to make that decision than today. Amen? So as you hear this song, I want you to pray with your heart and with your mind and give God permission to do something wonderful for you. Let's pray. God, I pray that the Spirit of Jesus would speak to each heart present and remind us of just how much you see in us, how much you value us, the price you paid to redeem us. And oh God, I pray that we would appreciate it and that as a result of the faith of Jesus, today we would place our faith in Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. 
Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.